to Trennis Magnus, Jab's Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and for a guy that's about to take a fairly lengthy uh, hiatus from podcasting, I sure have been doing a lot of podcasting lately, but uh, anyway, a couple of days ago, I released an episode of Trennis Magnus, Jab's Reality that talked a little bit about my uh, 2018 Lord of the Rings trilogy rewatch that I did over uh, Labor Day weekend. I talked a little bit about that and just kind of said, really more in passing, but I, I, I said that The Hobbit, or at least a fan edit of The Hobbit, the, uh, the uh, Maple Films uh, fan edit of The Hobbit is part of my annual Lord of the Rings uh, rewatch, and I my recollection of it is I really didn't say too much else besides that. You know, I, I think I basically touched on it, acknowledged it, and then just sort of moved right along. So now I'm going to talk about it a little bit. And uh, but guys, basically what it, what it comes down to, at least for me, is that I don't really consider the Hobbit trilogy, the ones that, you know, came out in theaters and everything, those movies, I don't really consider the Hobbit trilogy to be a worthy companion to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? I just don't. And there's some behind-the-scenes baloney that was going on where uh, Peter Jackson didn't really have the same amount of prep time on the Hobbit that he had with the Lord of the Rings, and that was just uh, a limitation that he was working up against. He had a, a, a release date for the first Hobbit movie, and that was set in stone. There was nothing he could do about that, you know? And basically, you know, The Lord of the Rings, I think, was very much a labor of love for uh, Peter Jackson. He went into that thing with uh, a lot of deliberation. There was a lot of planning and whatnot, something like a year uh, or so of uh, pre-production and planning and all this stuff that went on before cameras ever ever started rolling, right? An entire year's worth of work went into that. And I think it kind of shows in the final product, you know, because if you just, in my opinion, if you watch the theatrical cuts of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which for me, those are the definitive cuts of the movie, or movies, you know, the uh, theatrical editions, you know, there's a lot of momentum going on in the uh, theatrical cuts where one scene leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. You know, this is this is all very carefully paced. It's very deliberately timed. And a lot of thought went into this. Not so much The Hobbit, right? Where I think Peter Jackson had something like three or four months of pre-production time that he had to work with. And then pretty much that was it. You know, and I don't think it would be fair really to anybody to say that he just sort of pantsed his way through it and made it all up as he went along. I don't think that's fair or accurate. But I don't think it's completely inaccurate either, you know? The simple fact of the matter is, and honestly, I think even Peter Jackson himself will acknowledge this, you know, there was a certain amount of fly by the seat of your pants where he kind of had to figure out, you know, on the day what it was that he wanted to do, you know? And I think that shows in the final product, and I don't think that benefits the final product, you know? Because there are 
three three-ish hour movies, three of them, and they a lot of this really does kind of come off like sort of narrative filibustering, you know? Action scenes are either invented out of whole cloth or if they're taken from the novel, radically expanded out, you know, and taken in uh, uh, basically just such crazy extremes that it's obvious that we're just filling up a three-hour runtime here, guys. Now, it's kind of interesting that the negative reception that or relatively negative reception that the Hobbit trilogy received when it was released, particularly among people who are familiar with comics, because, you know, for a lot of years there, like now, I don't know, I don't really know so much about, but at least at one time, comics had a very dense and uh, decompressed way of uh, telling a story. And the... The industry term, I, I, I should say, is decompressed. The fan term was writing for the trade, but basically what it came down to is a bunch of stories that were artificially padded out to right around, you know, maybe 100 or 150 pages. Even if the story itself didn't really merit that, it was still padded out to be that just to make the, the story itself easier to collect into a, a trade paperback and sell in Barnes and Noble. Now, I think it would be, I think it's pretty fair to say that the market has changed uh, since that time, you know. Uh, I think even 10 years ago, you know, you would still see a lot of written for the trade type stuff. I mean, hell, there's an argument that, you know, Robert, uh, Ro uh, Robert Kirkman wasn't writing for the trade after a certain point with The Walking Dead. He was writing for the fucking omnibus, you know. But that type of, uh, just like I say, decompressed storytelling, you would think that comics fans would be, I don't know about receptive, but they would be a little bit more understanding about it. And the weird thing is, they really weren't, you know? Uh, they didn't take kindly to basically having to burn three hours of their time in each of these movies to get something that could have been fit probably into one movie, two movies tops, right? But somehow got expanded out to three movies just because, hey, we got to have a fucking trilogy, you know? And I'm familiar with all of those arguments, and I think I'm pretty conversant with them. Hell, I even agree with a lot of them. But I do think there, there are other flaws going on with The Hobbit that have nothing to do with all of the padding and the filibustering and all of this. There are other issues that... Maybe these things would have gotten ironed out if the the uh, creative team <laughs> here I am using a comic book a comic book term. Well, well fuck it whatever the creative team if they'd had several more months or even for that matter like a full year to really iron out these scripts you know maybe they wouldn't have well I don't know outright fucking contradicted Tolkien in a few places you know uh, and I mean this more in the sense of theme or for that matter, just kind of the worldview of Tolkien's universe that isn't necessarily always on display in The Hobbit. Now, to kind of tie it back to the Maple fan edit, the Maple Films uh, fan edit, there's no fan edit in the world that can fix questionable scripts, right? So some of the values and philosophies that are articulated in The Hobbit trilogy 
A fan edit can't necessarily fix those things, but a fan edit can and absolutely will trim the fat. And as it goes for the Hobbit trilogy, one of the things that I sort of like about the Maple Films fan edit is, number one, I just don't really go in for fan edits, just as a general rule, all right? My attitude is, look, if you love filmmaking so fucking much, why don't you make your own movie instead of chop up somebody else's? But having said all of that, for every rule, there's got to be some kind of an exception. And for me, the exception to this fan edit thing really... It really is the Hobbit trilogy, because if anything ever needed a fan edit, yeah, the the, the Hobbit tr trilogy is a, a pretty good candidate, I would say. And so, one of the things, though, like I say about the Maple Films fan edit that just really works for me, is that it doesn't just distill the story down to the stuff that Tolkien wrote. I mean, I think that's a... That, like implicitly that's part of the the editor's sort of self-assigned mandate you know and i don't think there's really any getting away from that he wanted to stick as closely to the hobbit novel as he could and so for everything else what he and I, and again i kind of covered this in my 2018 lord of the rings rewatch uh show but what he realized is there's actually another movie sort of lurking around in here and son of a bitch, you stitch all of these different scenes together, they really do go well together, you know? And so there's a companion piece to the Maple Films fan edit of The Hobbit. There's a companion piece called Durin's Folk and the Hill of Sorcery. And the thing that I really like about this is that it's a little bit Tarantino-esque, where the Maple Films fan edit of The Hobbit and... Durin's folk and the Hill of Sorcery, they do have overlapping scenes just sort of here and there. And what I like about that is that there are instances where uh, Durin's folk will expand outward on a particular scene or plot or, or, or subplot, really, and just kind of take it in its own direction. And you get a glimpse of that in uh, the Hobbit fan edit, but you get the full delivery of it in Durin's Folk. Or sometimes it's verse visa, right? Where you get like the hints and the beginnings of something in Durin's Folk, and then it actually gets brought to fullness in the Hobbit fan edit, right? And I really like that, you know? That is, like I say, I mean, it's, it's kind of Tarantino-esque in a weird kind of way, but it gives a different perspective. You're basically following different characters is what it comes down to. So instead of having this huge, vast, unnecessarily complicated, unnecessarily padded out, and I would say in some cases kind of unnecessarily crowded sort of ensemble piece in the the Hobbit trilogy, as you know it, the fan edit basically offers the Hobbit as a story and this... Uh, investigation of Dolgo, uh, of a Dolgoldur subplot basically gives both of those things enough room to breathe independently of each other. And what you find is they actually work incredibly fucking well when they're separated from one another, you know, because one of those stories follows Gandalf uh, pretty closely. And I'm talking about Durin's folk, right? Follows his stuff that's supposed to be happening off the page, so to speak, of The Hobbit. It is canon, but it's still happening off the page. And so now you get to fill in the gaps of what was Gandalf doing, you know, when he would uh, 
take his leave of uh, Thorin's company? Well, you watch Durin's folk, you'll have your answer. But you could watch the Hobbit fan edit, and you know what? Just don't worry about it, you know? But if you want it, if you want those answers, you can find them. And to me, that kind of speaks to a structural weakness of the Hobbit, the Hobbit trilogy, you know, not the fan edit, just the regular version, the Hobbit trilogy that uh, Peter Jackson did. It kind of speaks to a little bit of a, of a handicap that the Hobbit trilogy has, namely that there's no way, you know, having released Return of the King and, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is this huge, massive success and everybody loves it. The fact that Peter Jackson, by intent or just by happenstance or just however it was that things happened, the fact that the Lord of the Rings film trilogy was done before The Hobbit necessarily makes The Hobbit, the Hobbit movie or movies a prequel to Lord of the Rings. And the thing is, The Hobbit as a book is not a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is a sequel to The Hobbit. And it's important to say, guys, that words have a meaning, and the instant you lose sight of that meaning bad shit starts to happen, right? It's, and hell, it's happening right now. Ask yourself, how many times have you ever heard somebody accurately uh, use the word, and I mean this in the fan sense of the word, how many times have you heard somebody rightly use the word reboot? Lately, it probably hasn't been very many times, has it? You know? Those Gilmore Girls uh, movies that uh, came out on Netflix a couple of years ago, those were called reboots. If you think those are a reboot, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. So when I say that The Hobbit is not a prequel, by which I mean The Hobbit novel is not a prequel to the Lord of the Rings novel, that's what I'm talking about. Words have a meaning. A prequel is still a sequel. A prequel is a sequel that takes place before the original work, perhaps, but it is still a sequel. And the hand that Peter Jackson was playing, the hand that, like I say, for whatever reason he had been dealt when it came time to, to make uh, the Hobbit films, there was no getting around the fact that the Hobbit films were going to be prequels to The Lord of the Rings, right? The Hobbit films are a sequel to Lord of the Rings. They're just sequels that take place before the Lord of the Rings. That's all. But they are still a sequel, you know? And what I mean by that is that there's so there are so many callbacks to ideas and concepts that were brought into fullness in the Lord of the Rings. There are characters that were introduced and then developed in Lord of the Rings that are not introduced, not properly introduced in The Hobbit. They're just there. And the narrative assumes you know who they are, but there's no real introduction that's ever that's ever made. You know, I do think it does somewhat undermine what The Hobbit is supposed to be in relation to The Lord of the Rings. And look, I mean, there's a lot to be said for the fact that we are adapting these stories into live action feature film, right? We're not making cinematic duplicates of the books we are adapting these books into a different medium and you know what those arguments they are persuasive they are valid they are lucid 
I completely understand them. It probably wasn't even Peter Jackson's choice to make The Lord of the Rings prior to The Hobbit, you know? That may have just been the hand that he was dealt. But nevertheless, I don't know that it necessarily comes as a benefit to set up The Hobbit as a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. You know, it... For one thing, it, it kind of undermines the stakes of things. It, you know, you, you go into The Hobbit necessarily having already seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you already know that certain characters are safe, you know? There are legit perils that these characters face throughout The Hobbit that, at least in the case of Bilbo, uh, to a lesser degree, Gollum, definitely Gandalf, where you already know that they're going to be okay because we see him again in The Lord of the Rings, right? But also there's just this uh, kind of flashback bookend that Peter Jackson put in, which again ties The Hobbit more directly to The Lord of the Rings than I think maybe even Tolkien intended. And it's just on the whole, there's like I say, there are certain things that no fan edit in the world can possibly fix. And this is this kind of structural oddities like that related to the Hobbit movie trilogy, there's only so much you can do, you know? And then after that, you're, you're at the mercy of the footage that's available to you. But having said all of that, I really do think that the Maple Films fan edit of the Hobbit is worth watching just because when it comes to certain types of action scenes, Less really is more. You know, there's this there's this big escapade involving Thorin, uh, Thorin's company, you know, as they're fighting all of these goblins and stuff under the mountain. And there are, you know, battles and narrow escapes and, you know, people are tripping over stuff and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're falling off of peaks and, and, and whatnot. And there's this huge kind of, Raider, not Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, this uh, Temple of Doom kind of rail car sort of sort of thing that's going on at one point. And it's it, the Enterprise, it's so flashy. It's so action-packed. It's got everything in the kitchen sink thrown in that it's like after a while, it almost kind of, it's almost like it's a little over the top, the amount of uh, just insane escapades that are going on, you know, in this, in this sequence that it's, it's, you quickly reach a point of sort of diminishing returns, right? Where it's like so much action, so many narrow escapes, so many fights and so many sword battles and all this stuff. It's like, you, you just kind of become numb to it after a while. And that's less of a problem with the Maple Films edit where, yeah, there's a fair amount of action and stuff that's going on, and it's it's exciting and it's fun to watch, but it never really wears out its welcome. And overall, I just think that the Maple Film Editor struck a pretty good balance. You know, I mean, like I say, there are certain things that no fan edit in the entire world is going to be able to fix, namely a kind of questionable script, you know, or the fact that for better or for worse, the Hobbit movies were made and released after the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, no fan editor can possibly be expected to fix those things, but to the degree that these movies can be fixed at all, I really do think that the the Maple Film Editor 
he does he does as well as anybody possibly could put it that way you know and like i say you also get the dividend of durin's folk and the hill of sorcery where this to me it needs to be a separate story of all of these strange things that are happening in Dol Guldur and the investigation that's taking place there and it's apparently Burt Reynolds just died that just came through on my phone um, like I say it's just it's a much better presentation of the movie right so as I said in the Lord of the Rings episode I, I released a couple of days ago guys assuming that you own legal copies of the Hobbit trilogy I actually do recommend that you go out, track down the Maple Films uh, edit and Durin's Folk and the Hill of Sorcery because you can actually get them both at the same time. Track those things down and and give them a look because, you know, re-watching both of those things this year, you know, just as part of my Lord of the Rings project, re-watching those things this year, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean... Again, all of the weaknesses and shortcomings and flaws and stuff that I just outlined, all of those things are very real, they're very true, and there's still elements, although to a lesser degree, there's still elements, somewhat, of the Maple Films edit, but it's overall just a leaner, meaner, cleaner uh, cut of the trilogy, all thrilla, no filler, and it's just so good, you know? and. Just by virtue of the fact that there's less obnoxious bullshit flashing in your face, you know, non-stop for, what, what is it, like 12 hours or something like that? You know, this thing being four hours, I don't know why, but it's like easier for me to just enjoy the story and enjoy the production design and the acting and the characters and, you know, the sword fights and the action and the chases and, and all of this stuff, you know, just the drama of the story, you know. Peter Jackson was hired to create three three-hour uh, Hobbit movies, and that's what he did. And he did so, I would say, under less than favorable circumstances. And you know, it's like I acknowledge all of those things, but it's like at the same time, you know, my sympathy. I'm not trying to sound like an asshole or anything, but it's like my sympathy. It only goes so far. And then after that, I just want to watch an entertaining movie. I mean, look, man, I'm sorry that, you know, you had to make these incredibly complicated movies under less than ideal circumstances, you know, that maybe the movie studio should have trusted you a little bit more considering how great a job you did with the last Tolkien trilogy that, that you handled, you know, and, and all of those things are true, but it's like at the end of the day, all anybody wants is to watch an entertaining movie. And, you know, behind the scenes, you know, baloney that, you know, it might make for, you know, an interesting anecdote, but at the end of the day, a movie succeeds or fails based on how entertaining it is or it isn't, you know, and there's only so much that you can really hope to achieve by asking for sympathy from your audience, you know, and it's like after that, all they want is just an entertaining movie, or in this case, trilogy of movies, and, you know, it would be fair to say that maybe audiences didn't really get as much of that from Peter Jackson with The Hobbit, you know, no matter whose fault it might be, you know? So anyway, like I say, I do, again, triple underline this part. If you own legitimate 
you know, like legal copies of the Hobbit trilogy, if you paid for those, then yeah, I do recommend going out and tracking down um, the Maple Films edit of uh, the trilogy, you know, the Hobbit, and in this case, that kind of separate companion piece, Durin's Folk and the Hill of Sorcery. Go out and track them down. I think you'll be amazed at how enjoyable those two things are when they're separated from one another, you know? So, anyway, I can't necessarily say that satisfaction is guaranteed, but I do think you're likely to get more enjoyment out of it than from the uh, regular uh, editions of the movie, or, for that matter, the extended editions. Basically, the trilogy that, that Peter Jackson made. I think you'll get more enjoyment out of this fan edit, so... There you go. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me this time, so... Bye, everybody. I will see you next time. think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. 
just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>